you are a guest or a visitor, um, we have been uh, studying the book of Nehemiah together for the past four or five weeks. And here at the Vineyard, we believe that Jesus is alive and that he's at work in the world, that we don't worship an idea or a theology, that our kind of goal is not to be caught up in some sort of good living morality that will ensure some sort of uh, comfortable eternity, but that actually the king of all kings and the king of everything is alive and at work around us, and he invites us to join him in his work and that full and real life is found in that process. And we've been studying this book of Nehemiah with the question, okay, if that's true, how? Like, if it's true that Jesus is alive, and that he's working in our community and in the lives of those around us, how do we actually get involved? What does that look like? And the book of Nehemiah has provided a little bit of a guide for us in our attempt to answer that question. If you're not familiar with the book of Nehemiah, it's written by... Nehemiah, I know it's really tricky, that one, isn't it? Um, So the book of Nehemiah is written by Nehemiah. It's actually an ancient journal. It's Nehemiah's own sort of record of his life. And uh, Nehemiah essentially was a slave in a foreign king's court. And while he's enslaved to this foreign king, his brother, whose name was Hakaliah. Hakaliah was from Dramara. And... His middle name was Bai, and uh, if you call him his proper name, you call him Hakalai Bai. And um, he wasn't actually from Jamar, but it sounds like he was. Um, so his brother Hakalai comes to visit him, and while his brother is visiting him, um, Nehemiah says, How are things at home? What's going on in Jerusalem? And Hakalai tells him that the walls have fallen down, that the gates in the city have been burned, and his heart is literally broken. This place that he loves is in ruins. And he begins to weep and cry about the place that he's from. And then he begins to pray. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, God moves and essentially sends him out of slavery to become the governor of Jerusalem. And the foreign king actually pays for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is his record of him carrying out this assignment of rebuilding those walls. Like I said, we believe that Jesus is at work all around us. And it might not be an assignment of rebuilding city walls, but the reality is, as we get around Jesus, he speaks to us about the purpose for our lives. That life is about more than getting a paycheck to enjoy the weekend so you can one day get to retirement and play golf for 15 years. If that's all there is, it's pretty tragic. There's actually a much greater purpose that I think if we listen carefully, we can hear the longings for it within our very own souls. It's one of the reasons why we're addicted to sport and things like that. And by the way, wasn't last night amazing? I love sport. But I think we all have to be careful, particularly maybe some of the guys in the room, that we don't escape to it. That the longing for purpose in our lives isn't taken up by the pursuit of some kind of sports team or some sort of other arbitrary cause. You see, the reality is God has metaphorical walls for our lives to be about rebuilding. 
For some of you, that looks like praying for the sick on the streets of our city. For some of you, it looks like leveraging your skills and influence to see the marginalized in our city find community. For some of you, that looks like fostering and adoption. For some of you, it's raising kids and being good neighbors. For some of you, it looks like starting a new business. And I want to pause for a moment and honor some people in our community that have just uh, literally done that. Carl Moore, are you, there's Carl. Is Jason here? Did he nip out? Brilliant. He's gonna, here he is. Look at him at the back. This is, this is Carl and Jason. Carl, will you stand? Do we have a photograph there, guys? This is uh, live as of last Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday, Carl opened this new business, Upper Bound Dairy, farm shop, coffee shop. And uh, can we honor her and Jason for that? I know that you are literally dying inside with me making you stand for so long, but stay there. Um, We know in this community what it takes to start something from scratch. We know what it feels like to be in the dreaming phase and the waiting phase, and we know how terrifying it is to actually be in the it's now alive and happening phase. And we want to honor your courage and your faith to step out and bring life to this community. And we wouldn't be us if we didn't bless you guys. Jason, we're going to pray for Carl. Come on over. You bring, come on. Give Jason a big hand as he comes. Little one in tow. One of the tragedies often in church is we only ever pray for church stuff. And if we're actually going to see the life of Jesus come to every person in every part, then this is as crucial as sending a church plant to Connemara. And uh, so uh, if you're around them and you know them, if you're in the room and you, wanna, you, you love them dearly, get around them. We're going to take a minute and pray. We're not going to rush. We're going to run over time this morning. We've warned our teams and all that kind of stuff. But would you move around, gather around um, Jason and Carol now. We're going to pray for them. Um, I know they've got friends all over the room that are they're very involved in that community and love them dearly and all that sort of stuff. So um, we'd love to pray for you guys. Will you join me in, in praying for a moment? Um, Father, thank you so much for this family. God, thank you for their courage and their commitment to follow the things that you're speaking over them. Holy Spirit, I pray for favor and blessing upon this new initiative God, I pray for customers in their droves this week. I pray for financial resources and blessing upon them. God, I pray that they would know your presence as they seek to bring life to this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you give them a hand? I love that all our metaphorical walls are different. But the reality is that God invites us to be part of what he is doing. And the Christian life makes much more sense when we get this. That following Jesus is not about sin management or avoiding drinking, smoking, or swearing. And we've, like I said, been using this book as a bit of a template for us over the past few weeks. And this morning I want to talk about finishing well. How do we finish well when God speaks to us about an assignment or a task that that he has for us for a time or for a period of our lives? How do we finish? How do we finish well? That text that Vet read for us this morning from chapter 8, we see the walls have been built. Nehemiah has finished the job. 
The walls are rebuilt. The gates are back on. And verse 1 we read, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. The first thing we need to understand, remember when it comes to finishing well, is achievements without people are meaningless. Achievements without people are meaningless. We need to learn how to prioritize people. You see, the project for Nehemiah might have been the walls, but the point was always people. And it would have been so easy for Nehemiah to have got to the point where the walls are up and the gates are on and to go and get a beer or a coffee or whatever his celebratory drink of choice was and to sit back and go, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. That's not what he does. The first thing he does when the walls are rebuilt and the people have returned to the city is he gathers them all together. All the people gathered together as one. You see, God cares most about people and there's literally no point to any of this if we don't understand that. There is literally no point to any of what we're doing if we don't understand that at the very core of every single initiative, every single assignment, every single endeavor is people. Many of you know that in my spare time and to relax, I love to climb mountains. It's an important word because often when I say that, people are like, oh yeah, I like going into the mornings. It's like, no, I don't mean walking. It's not the same. In fact, Dana posted a picture of me on Instagram once on the north face of Ben Nevis on a fairly gnarly climb called Tower Ridge. And a friend of hers commented on it. Oh yeah, my husband has been up Ben Nevis three times. And everything in me wanted to type back and be like, not the same thing. That's just my wee quirks. But anyway, one of, the questions, one of the questions people ask when they find out that I climb often is, would you ever like to climb Mount Everest? And the answer, honestly, is no. And we don't really have time to get into all of that. I can share with you afterwards. But um, there is this strange ethic in high-altitude mountaineering that basically is every man or team for themselves. That over a certain altitude, if you get into trouble... People helping you is likely to get them into trouble. And so the assumption is after you get over a certain height, somewhere between six and a half and 7,000 meters, if you're in trouble up there, you're kind of on your own. About two years ago, Eddie Williams, who's in Big Party, and I were climbing in Scotland in the winter. And we were coming off the north face of Ben Nevis, and we came into the car park, and there's this little van sitting, and it had been converted into like a camper van. And there was a, there was a little man, um, kind of short, making some coffee. And Eddie went, oh, Darren, how's it going? And we went over and had a bit of a chat. And uh, he'd just been on some ridiculously hard route on the north face of Ben Nevis. And as we were walking away, I was like, who's that guy? And Eddie said, you should go home and read about him. That's a guy called Darren. Swift, who literally carried a blind man off the top of Mount Everest. And of course, we went back to our accommodation. The first thing I did was Google Darren Swift Everest. You can all do that whenever you go home. And you can read the story of their assault on, I think it was the northeast ridge of Everest. And uh, they've done all their acclimatization. They've been out there for weeks. They've done all their different camps, and they get to summit day. They've been preparing for this for at least probably a year or more. And uh, they get a call through the radio that there are two climbers above them that are in trouble. And Darren and his pals have a bit of a chat about what they're going to do, and they decide to go and help. And uh, Darren finds this guy who's snow blind, and his feet are like pretty badly frostbitten, and he can't really walk. And the other guy that's with him has a broken leg. And so his three, the three, other three guys in his team decide they'll deal with the guy with the broken leg, and Darren starts to take the blind, frostbitten feet guy down the mountain. It is one of the most heroic things you can imagine. And on the way down, they meet a couple coming up. 
uh, father and son. And they stop me like, what's going on? They say, well, this guy's got snow blindness and frostbite. And the guys are like, is he part of your team? No, no, he's not part of our team. We just found him and I'm, I guess I'm carrying him down. And Darren Swift saves this guy's life. The father and son were going to be the first father and son combo to ever climb Everest. And they just let Darren continue to carry the guy down the mountain and off they went and, and summited. This is complicated, but the reality is it's a fairly regular occurrence that people en route to the top of Everest step over dying humans to go and achieve their goal. I think we've gone mad. Achievements without people are meaningless. They're meaningless. This might be a little bit morbid for us to think about, but I think it's important. You see, whenever we get to our deathbed, for those of us that are fortunate, I, I guess, to get to that moment, you won't be thinking about the zeros in your bank account. And you won't be thinking about the degrees or the achievements around your wall. I hope and pray that your bed is surrounded by people that love you and that that's your legacy. When it comes to finishing well, prioritize people. Never lose sight that people are always the point. It doesn't matter how big we get. It doesn't matter how our reputation grows. If we, not, if we cannot say of each other that we love each other and we love our city, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. John 13, 34, Jesus commands us to love one another as he loves us. John 1, 4, whoever claims he loves God but hates his brother or sister is a liar. And just in case you're wondering who your brother or sister is, Jesus answered that story in a really provocative question that wasn't the people you find easy to like. Amber challenged us profoundly this morning to pray for perpetrators of domestic violence and child abuse. I don't know if there's anything harder. What makes us different is the people of God, is the dignity with which we hold all of humanity. Not just those that we find it easy to get on with or easy to like. If you want to finish well, prioritize people. Why? Because that's what's on God's heart. You want to know what God cares about? He cares about people. All people. Every person. Learn to prioritize people. Never lose sight of the people in the process. And never give up on loving them to the very end. Verse 6, let's keep going. Ezra praised the Lord. So the people have gathered. They've started to read from the law that Moses received. And then verse 6, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. First thing we need to remember when it comes to finishing well is we need to learn how to prioritize people. The second is this, we need to learn how to prioritize worship. There was a novelist in the 20th century called David Foster Wallace. He was a postmodern novelist. I've tried to read one of his books and it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but people much smarter than me say he was a genius. And um, he tragically, at a really young age, took his own life. 
He was a convinced atheist, and he said this in a university commencement address. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. I don't think we need any more commentary on what we're watching in our political sphere than that line from David Foster Wallace at the minute, but let's keep going. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The tragedy of someone who I think saw the world so clearly and yet could not liberate himself. The question is not if you will worship. The question is what or whom. And how is that going to affect your life and the lives of those around you? You see, whenever we get to the end of a project or an assignment or some great thing that God has called us into or asked us to do and and it's... kind of required all of our energy and all of our blood and sweat and tears and we see it happen. The temptation can be to slump into a sofa utterly exhausted and spent and to rest, recover and then move on to what's next. This moment in Nehemiah reminds us to pause. Finishing well requires us to prioritize worship. To prioritize worship. Listen, there are times when worship is spontaneous. When something shifts and God breaks in and you cannot help yourself but go, oh my goodness, God, you're awesome. I don't know about you, but in my life, those times are definitely in the minority. Learning how to prioritize worship in all seasons in every moment as we move towards completing the things that God has asked us to do are so, so, so important. Now listen, I know that you know that we talk all the time about how worship is everything. Worship is how you treat your employees if you own a business. Worship is how you manage your finances. Worship is your attitude to your friends and your neighbors. Everything is worship. That is absolutely true. 
But worship is also when we intentionally position and posture ourselves in front of God, declaring who he is, regardless of what's going on in our lives. That's what it is. I want you just to imagine for a second that if the only time you hung out with your spouse or partner was in public, how tragic that would be. And yet the reality is for many of us, that's kind of our approach to God. That we find ourselves in this moment, once a week, being reminded of who God is and how great he is And how important it is that we worship him with everything that we have. But what if worship wasn't confined to this moment? What if you could learn to position and posture yourselves in the kitchen in the morning while you're waiting for the kettle to boil? Put on some worship music and remind yourself at the start of the day that all hell, metaphorically, maybe is about to be unleashed. But God is still good and he is still great. What if in the car, in between meetings, or after that bad news, rather than just reeling in fear or panic or anxiety, you actually paused and began to prioritize worship? I wonder what would happen to the atmosphere around your life. Finishing well requires us to prioritize people. It requires us to prioritize worship. And finally, verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is our strength. There's an Irish philosopher, former Catholic priest called John O'Donoghue. He's from Connemara. He's one of my favorite writers. And uh, he has this beautiful line. He says, in his life he noticed the more holy a person, the more devilment there was in their life. Beautiful expression. What he was saying was he he noticed the closer someone was to God, seemingly the more fun and rascality there was about them. They didn't take themselves too seriously and they knew how to party. Northern Ireland is terrible about this. Like We love a good moan, don't we? Just pay attention to how people answer the question, how are you doing? How often do you hear, well, you know, I can't complain. (laughs) So you're good. No, I wouldn't say I'm good. (laughs) But I can't complain. (laughs) Or I'm not too bad. You know, like like it, it feels like we do life braced for it all to fall apart at any moment. You know? And nobody teaches us this stuff. And we get really nervous when we go places like America after conversations and people go, have a great day. And you're like, I don't trust that guy. (laughs) What have they got to be so happy about all the time? (laughs) What if we learned how to prioritize celebration? What if we learned that celebration was in fact a holy thing? What if rather than being known for the dour, somber, grumpy Christians, we were actually known as those who knew to party like no one else? You know the Old Testament, whenever God like gives the people the law, in the midst of it is 
festival after festival after festival after festival that written into the rhythm of their community was pause and celebrate. Well, you know, I don't really feel like celebrating. Well, then celebrate all the more. Well, I don't really like that person that sits on the other side of church. And, you know, music gets a bit loud and, you know, it can be a bit, it can be a bit weird. Really? Romans 12, 15 says that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? That's the Northern Irish version. It says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We, we actually find it much easier. I think we're very at home weeping with those who weep. We're good at it. I know life is so hard. And someday maybe it'll be better. But until then, I guess we'll just hang in there, right? What if the order was important? That in the rejoicing with those who rejoice, that actually multiplied in a community and in a life. What if celebration became a discipline? When was the last time you did something purely for fun? Come on now. We're parents, we're employees, business owners. We've got responsibilities. When was the last time you did something just for fun? And if the answer is, I can't remember, don't blame anybody else. Those of you that are married, here, here's your homework. Create space this week and this month for your spouse to have some fun. No strings attached. And if you want to go crazy, right? argue about which one's going to have the fun. No, you have fun. No, you have fun. No, you have fun. Can you imagine what would happen to our marriages if that was our posture? Not, you've been out three nights this week. I'm going to be out four nights next week. Well, I've had the kids for six hours today, so you're going to need to have kids for seven hours tomorrow. What if we began to argue about releasing each other rather than controlling each other? What if we learned the discipline of celebration? To learn how to walk lightly humbly and in the midst of the darkest days learning to find things to celebrate I have a friend who says actually let's do it this way who's got socks on in the room wave at me if you've got socks brilliant the very least you can celebrate that (laughs) I'm not kidding you know there are lots of people in the world that have no socks and I, forgive me if this kind of takes some of the lightness out of the room. We just heard about a family that are literally teenagers are swapping trainers. We need to learn the discipline of celebration to see the blessings of God in our lives.